0: Chapter fourteen part two of the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection by Charles Darwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Michael Armenta. Morphology. We have seen that the members of the same class, independently of their habits of life, resemble each other in the general plan of their organisation this resemblance is often expressed by the term quote, unity of type end quote, or by saying that the several parts and organs in the different species of the class are homologous the whole subject is included under the general term of morphology this is one of the most interesting departments of natural history and may almost be said to be its very soul what can be more curious than that the hand of a man formed for grasping that of a mole for digging, the leg of the horse, the paddle of the porpoise, and the wing of the bat should all be constructed on the same pattern, and should include similar bones in the same relative positions. How curious it is to give a subordinate, though striking instance, that the hind feet of the kangaroo, which are so well fitted for bounding over the open plains, those of the climbing leaf-eating koala, equally well fitted for grasping the branches of trees, those of the ground-dwelling insect or rotating bandicoots and those of some other australian marsupials should all be constructed on the same extraordinary type namely with the bones of the second and third digits extremely slender and enveloped within the same skin so that they appear like a single toe furnished with two claws notwithstanding this similarity of pattern It is obvious that the hind feet of these several animals are used for as widely different purposes as it is possible to conceive. Their case is rendered all the more striking by the American opossums, which follow nearly the same habits of life as some of their Australian relatives, having feet constructed on the ordinary plan. Professor Flower, from whom these statements are taken, remarks in conclusion, We may call this conformity to type, without getting much nearer to an explanation of the phenomenon. He then adds, But is it not powerfully suggestive of true relationship, of inheritance from a common ancestor? Geoffrey St. Hilaire has strongly insisted on the high importance of relative position or connection in homologous parts they may differ to almost any extent in form and size, and yet remain connected together in the same invariable order. We never find, for instance, the bones of the arm and forearm, or of the thigh and leg, transposed. Hence the same names can be given to the homologous bones in widely different animals. We see the same great law in the construction of the mouths of insects, What can be more different than the immensely long, spiral proboscis of a sphinx-moth, the curious folded one of a bee or bug, and the great jaws of a beetle? Yet all these organs, serving for so widely different purposes, are formed by infinitely numerous modifications of an upper lip, mandibles, and two pairs of maxillae. The same law governs the construction of the mouths and limbs of crustaceans, so it is with the flowers of plants. Nothing can be more hopeless than to attempt to explain this similarity of pattern in members of the same class, by utility or by the doctrine of final causes. The hopelessness of the attempt has been expressly admitted by Owen in his most interesting work on Nature of Limbs. On the ordinary view of the independent creation of each being, we can only say that so it is, That it has pleased the creator to construct all the animals and plants in each great class on a uniform plan but this is not a scientific explanation the explanation is to a large extent simple on the theory of the selection of successive slight modifications each being profitable in some way to the modified form but often affecting by correlation other parts of the organization in changes of this nature there will be little or no tendency to alter the original pattern, or to transpose the parts. The bones of a limb might be shortened and flattened to any extent, becoming, at the same time, enveloped in a thick membrane, so as to serve as a fin. Or a webbed hand might have all its bones, or certain bones, lengthened to any extent, with the membrane connecting them increased, so as to serve as a wing." Yet all these modifications would not tend to alter the framework of the bones or the relative connection of the parts, if we supposed that an early progenitor, the archetype, as it may be called, of all mammals, birds, and reptiles, had its limbs constructed on the existing general pattern. For whatever purpose they served, we can at once perceive the plain signification of the homologous construction of the limbs throughout the class. So with the mouth of insects we have only to suppose that their common progenitor had an upper lip, mandibles, and two pairs of maxillae, these parts being perhaps very simple in form, and then natural selection will account for the infinite diversity in structure and function of the mouths of insects. Nevertheless it is conceivable that the general pattern of an organ might become so much obscured as to be finally lost by the reduction, and ultimately by the complete abortion of certain parts, by the fusion of other parts, and by the doubling or multiplication of others, variations which we know to be within the limits of possibility. In the paddles of the gigantic extinct sea-lizards, and in the mouths of certain suctorial crustaceans, the general pattern seems thus to have become partially obscured. There is another and equally curious branch of our subject, namely, serial homologies, or the comparison of the different parts or organs in the same individual, and not of the same parts or organs in different members of the same class. Most physiologists believe that the bones of the skull are homologous, that is, correspond in number and in relative connection with the elemental part of a certain number of vertebrae. The anterior and posterior limbs in all the higher vertebrate classes are plainly homologous, so it is with the wonderfully complex jaws and legs of crustaceans. It is familiar to almost every one that in a flower the relative position of the sepals, petals, stamens, and pistils, as well as their intimate structure, are intelligible on the view that they consist of metamorphosed leaves arranged in a spire, in monstrous plants we often get direct evidence of the possibility of one organ being transformed into another and we can actually see during the early or embryonic stages of development in flowers as well as in crustaceans and many other animals that organs which when mature become extremely difficult are at first exactly alike how inexplicable are the cases of serial homologies on the ordinary view of creation why should the brain be enclosed in a box composed of such numerous and such extraordinarily shaped pieces of bone apparently representing vertebrae as owen has remarked the benefit derived from the yielding of the separate pieces in the act of parturition by mammals will by no means explain the same construction in the skulls of birds and reptiles why should similar bones have been created to form the wing and the leg of a bat used as they are for such totally different purposes namely flying and walking why should one crustacean which has an extremely complex mouth formed of many parts consequently always have fewer legs or conversely those with many legs have simpler mouths why should the sepals petals stamens and pistils in each flower though fitted for such distinct purposes be all constructed on the same pattern on the theory of natural selection We can, to a certain extent, answer these questions. We need not here consider how the bodies of some animals first became divided into a series of segments, or how they became divided into right and left sides, with corresponding organs, for such questions are almost beyond investigation. It is, however, probable that some serial structures are the result of cells multiplying by division, entailing the multiplication of the parts developed from such cells. It must suffice, for our purpose, to bear in mind that an indefinite repetition of the same part or organ is the common characteristic, as Owen has remarked, of all low or little specialised forms. Therefore the unknown progenitor of the vertebrata probably possessed many vertebrae, the unknown progenitor of the articulata, many segments, and the unknown progenitor flowering plants, many leaves arranged in one or more spires. We have also formerly seen that parts, many times repeated, are eminently liable to vary not only in number but in form. Consequently, such parts, being already present in considerable numbers and being highly variable, would naturally afford the materials for adaptation to the most different purposes, yet they would generally retain, through the force of inheritance, plain traces of their original or fundamental resemblance. They would retain this resemblance all the more, as the variations which afforded the basis for their subsequent modification through natural selection would tend, from the first, to be similar, the parts being at an early stage of growth alike, and being subjected to nearly the same conditions. Such parts, whether more or less modified, unless their common origin became wholly obscured, would be serially homologous in the great class of mollusks, though the parts in distinct species can be shown to be homologous, only a few serial homologies, such as the valves of chitons, can be indicated. That is, we are seldom enabled to say that one part is homologous with another part in the same individual. And we can understand this fact, for in mollusks, even in the lowest members of the class, we do not find nearly so much indefinite repetition of any one part as we find in the other great classes of the animal and vegetable kingdoms. But morphology is a much more complex subject than it at first appears, as has lately been well shown in a remarkable paper by Mr. E. Ray Lancaster, who has drawn an important distinction between certain classes of cases which have all been equally ranked by naturalists as homologous. He proposes to call the structures which resemble each other in distinct animals owing to their descent from a common progenitor with subsequent modification. Quote, homogeneous end quote. and the resemblances which cannot thus be accounted for he proposes to call quote, homoplastic end quote. for instance he believes that the heart of birds and mammals are as a whole homogeneous that is they have been derived from a common progenitor but that the four cavities of the heart in the two classes are homoplastic that is have been independently developed mr lancaster also adduces the close resemblance of the parts on the right and left sides of the body and in the successive segments of the same individual animal and here we have parts commonly called homologous which bear no relation to the descent of distinct species from a common progenitor homoplastic structures are the same with those which i have classed though in a very imperfect manner as analogous modifications or resemblances Their formation may be attributed in part to distinct organisms, or to distinct parts of the same organism, having varied in an analogous manner, and in part to similar modifications, having been preserved for the same general purpose or function of which many instances have been given. Naturalists frequently speak of the skull as formed or metamorphosed vertebrae, the jaws of crabs as metamorphosed legs the stamens and pistils in flowers as metamorphosed leaves but it would in most cases be more correct as professor huxley has remarked to speak of both skull and vertebrae jaws and legs etc as having been metamorphosed not one from the other as they now exist but from some common and simpler element most naturalists however use such language only in metaphorical sense they are far from meaning that, during a long course of descent, primordial organs of any kind, vertebrae in one case and legs in the other, have actually been converted into skulls or jaws. Yet so strong is the appearance of this having occurred, that naturalists can hardly avoid employing language having this plain signification. According to the views here maintained, such language may be used literally, and the wonderful fact of the jaws for instance of a crab retaining numerous characters which they probably would have retained through inheritance if they had really been metamorphosed from true though extremely simple legs is in part explained development and embryology this is one of the most important subjects in the whole round of natural history the metamorphoses of insects with which everyone is familiar, are generally effected abruptly by a few stages, but the transformations are in reality numerous and gradual, though concealed. A certain ephemerous insect, Cleon, during its development, molts, as shown by Sir J. Lubbock, about twenty times, and each time undergoes a certain amount of change, and in this case we see the act of metamorphosis performed in a primary and gradual manner. Many insects, and especially certain crustaceans, show us what wonderful changes of structure can be effected during development. Such changes, however, reach their acme in the so-called alternate generations of some of the lower animals. It is, for instance, an astonishing fact that a delicate branching coralline, studded with polypi and attached to a submarine rock, should produce first by budding, and then by transverse division, a host of huge floating jellyfishes, and that these should produce eggs, from which are hatched swimming animalcules, which attach themselves to rocks and become developed into branching corallines, and so on in an endless cycle. The belief in the essential identity of the process of alternate generation, and of ordinary metamorphosis, has been greatly strengthened by wagner's discovery of the larva or maggot of a fly namely the sesidomia, producing asexually other larvae and these others which finally are developed into mature males and females propagating their kind in the ordinary manner by eggs it may be worth notice that when Wagner's remarkable discovery was first announced, I was asked how was it possible to account for the larvae of this fly having acquired the power of a sexual reproduction. As long as the case remained unique, no answer could be given. But already Grimm has shown that another fly, a Chironomus, reproduces itself in nearly the same manner, and he believes that this occurs frequently in the order. It is the pupa and not the larva of the Chironomus, which has this power. And Grimm further shows that this case, to a certain extent, quote, unites that of the Cessidomia with the Parthenogenesis of the Coccidae. Quote. The term Parthenogenesis, implying that the mature females of the Coccidae are capable of producing fertile eggs without the concourse of the male, Certain animals belonging to several classes are now known to have the power of ordinary reproduction at an unusually early age, and we have only to accelerate parthenogenetic reproduction by gradual steps to an earlier and earlier age, Chironomus showing us an almost exactly intermediate stage, these, that of the pupa, and we can perhaps account for the marvellous case of the Cicidomia, It has already been stated that various parts in the same individual, which are exactly alike, during an early embryonic period, become widely different and serve for widely different purposes in the adult state. So again it has been shown that, generally, the embryos of the most distinct species, belonging to the same class, are closely similar, but become, when fully developed, widely dissimilar. A better proof of this latter fact cannot be given than the statement by von Baer that quote, the embryos of mammalia, of birds, lizards, and snakes, probably also of colonia, are in the earliest states exceedingly like one another, both as a whole, and in the mode of development of their parts, so much so, in fact, that we can often distinguish the embryos only by their size, in my possession are two little embryos in spirit whose names i have omitted to attach and at present i am quite unable to say what class they belong they may be lizards or small birds or very young mammalia so complete is the similarity in the mode of formation of the head and trunk in these animals the extremities however are still absent in these embryos but even if they had existed in the earliest stage of their development we should learn nothing for the feet of lizards and mammals the wings and feet of birds no less than the hands and feet of man all arise from the same fundamental form the larvae of most crustaceans at corresponding stages of development closely resemble each other however different the adults may become and so it is with very many other animals a trace of the law of embryonic resemblance occasionally lasts till a rather late age thus birds of the same genus and of allied genera often resemble each other in their immature plumage as we see in the spotted feathers in the young of the thrush group in the cat tribe most of the species when adult are striped or spotted in lines and stripes or spots can be plainly distinguished in the whelp of the lion and the puma we occasionally though rarely see something of the same kind in plants thus the first leaves of the ulex or firs and the first leaves of the philodynius acacias are pinnate or or divided like the ordinary leaves of the leguminosae the points of structure in which the embryos of widely different animals within the same class resemble each other often have no direct relation to their conditions of existence We cannot, for instance, suppose that in the embryos of the vertebrata the peculiar loop-like courses of the arteries near the bronchial slits are related to similar conditions. We cannot, for instance, suppose that in the embryos of the vertebrata the peculiar loop-like courses of the artery near the bronchial slits are related to similar conditions. In the young mammal which is nourished in the womb of its mother, in the egg of the bird, which is hatched in a nest and in the spawn of a frog under water we have no more reason to believe in such a relation than we have to believe that the similar bones in the hand of a man wing of a bat and fin of a porpoise are related to similar conditions of life no one supposes that the stripes on the whop of a lion or the spots on the young blackbird are of any use to these animals the case however is different when an animal during any part of its embryonic career is active and has to provide for itself the period of activity may come on earlier or later in life but whenever it comes on the adaptation of the larva to its conditions of life is just as perfect and as beautiful as in the adult animal in how important a manner this has acted has recently been well shown by sir j lubbock in his remarks on the close similarity of the larvae of some insects belonging to very different orders and on the dissimilarity of the larvae of other insects within the same order, according to their habits of life. Owing to such adaptations, the similarity of the larvae of allied animals is sometimes greatly obscured, especially when there is a division of labour during the different stages of development, as when the same larvae has during one stage to search for food, and another stage has to search for a place of attachment, cases can even be given of the larvae of allied species, or groups of species, differing more from each other than do the adults. In most cases, however, the larvae, though active, still obey, more or less closely, the law of common embryonic resemblance. Cirripedes afford a good instance of this. Even the illustrious Cuvier did not perceive that a barnacle was a crustacean, but a glance at the larva shows this in an unmistakable manner. So again the two main divisions of cirripedes, the pedunculated and sessile, though differing widely in external appearance, have larvae in all their stages barely distinguishable. The embryo, in the course of development, generally rises in organization. I use this expression, though I am aware that it is hardly possible to define clearly what is meant by organization being higher or lower, but no one probably will dispute that the butterfly is higher than the caterpillar. In some cases, however, the mature animal must be considered as lower in the scale than the larva, as with certain parasitic crustaceans. To refer once again to syrupedes, the larvae in the first stage have three pairs of locomotive organs a simple single eye and a probosciformed mouth with which they feed largely for they increase much in size in the second stage answering to the chrysalis stage of butterflies they have six pairs of beautifully constructed natatory legs a pair of magnificent compound eyes an extremely complex antennae but they have a closed and imperfect mouth cannot feed their function at this stage is to search out by their well-developed organs of sense, and to reach by their active powers of swimming a proper place on which to become attached and to undergo their final metamorphosis. When this is completed, they are fixed for life. Their legs are now converted into prehensile organs. They again obtain a well-constructed mouth, but they have no antennae, and their two eyes are now reconverted into a minute, single, simple eye-spot in this last and complete state syrupedes may be considered as either more highly or more lowly organized than they were in the larval condition but in some genera the larvae become developed into hermaphrodites having the ordinary structure or into what i have called complemental males and in the latter the development has assuredly been retrograde for the male is a mere sac which lives for a short time and is destitute of mouth stomach and every other organ of importance excepting those for reproduction we are so much accustomed to see a difference in structure between the embryo and the adult that we are tempted to look at this difference as in some necessary manner contingent on growth but there is no reason why for instance the wing of a bat or the fin of a porpoise should not have been sketched out with all their parts in proper proportion as soon as any part became visible in some whole groups of animals and in certain members of other groups this is the case and the embryo does not at any period differ widely from the adult thus owen has remarked in regard to cuttlefish "there is no metamorphosis the cephalopodic character is manifested long before the parts of the embryo are completed" land shells and freshwater crustaceans are born having their proper forms while the marine members of the same two great classes pass through considerable and often great changes during their development spiders again barely undergo any metamorphosis the larvae of most insects pass through a worm-like stage whether they are active and adapted to diversified habits or are inactive from being placed in the midst of proper nutriment or from being fed by their parents but in some few cases as in that of aphides. If we look to the admirable drawings of the development of this insect by Professor Huxley, we see hardly any trace of the vermiform stage. Sometimes it is only the earlier developmental stages which fail. Thus Fritz Müller has made the remarkable discovery that certain shrimp-like crustaceans, allied to peneas, first appear under the simple nauplius form, and after passing through two or more zea stages, and then through the mysis stage, finally acquire their mature structure. Now, in the whole great malacostrican order to which these crustaceans belong, no other member is as yet known to be first developed under the nauplius form, though many appear as zeas. Nevertheless, Müller assigns reasons for his belief that if there had been no suppression of development, all these crustaceans would have appeared as naupli. How, then, can we explain these several facts in embryology? Namely, the very general, though not universal, difference in structure between the embryo and the adult, the various parts in the same individual embryo, which ultimately become very unlike and serve for diverse purposes, being at an early period of growth alike the common but not invariable resemblance between the embryos or larvae of the most distinct species in the same class the embryo often retaining while within the egg or womb structures which are of no service to it either at that or at a later period of life on the other hand larvae which have to provide for their own wants being perfectly adapted to the surrounding conditions and lastly the fact of certain larvae standing higher in the scale of organization than the mature animal into which they are developed i believe that all these facts can be explained as follows it is commonly assumed perhaps from monstrosities affecting the embryo at a very early period that slight variations or individual differences necessarily appear at an equally early period We have little evidence on this head. But what we have certainly points the other way, for it is notorious that breeders of cattle, horses, and various fancy animals cannot positively tell, until some time after birth, what will be the merits and demerits of their young animals. We see this plainly in our own children. We cannot tell whether a child will be tall or short, or what its precise features will be. The question is not at what period of life any variation may have been caused, but at what period the effects are displayed. The cause may have acted, and I believe often has acted, on one or both parents before the act of generation. It deserves notice that it is of no importance to a very young animal, as long as it is nourished and protected by its parent, whether most of its characters are acquired a little earlier or later in life. It would not signify, for instance, to a bird which obtained its food by having a much curved beak, whether or not, while young, it possessed a beak of this shape, as long as it was fed by its parents. I have stated in the first chapter that at whatever age any variation first appears in the parent, it tends to reappear at a corresponding age in the offspring. Certain variations can only appear at corresponding ages. For instance, peculiarities in the caterpillar, cocoon, or imago states of the silk-moth, or again in the full-grown horns of cattle. But variations, which for all that we can see might have appeared either earlier or later in life, likewise tend to reappear at a corresponding age in the offspring and parent. I am far from meaning that this is invariably the case, and I could give several exceptional cases of variations taking the word in the largest sense, which have supervened at an earlier age in the child than in the parent. These two principles, namely that slight variations generally appear at a not very early period in life, and are inherited at a corresponding not early period, explain, as I believe, all the above-specified leading facts in embryology. But first let us look to a few analogous cases in our domestic varieties some authors who have written on dogs maintain that the greyhound and bulldog though so different are really closely allied varieties descended from the same wild stock hence i was curious to see how far their puppies differed from each other i was told by breeders that they differed just as much as their parents and this judging by the eye seemed almost to be the case but on actually measuring the old dogs and their six days old puppies i found that the puppies had not acquired nearly their full amount of proportional difference so again i was told that the foals of cart and race-horses breeds which have been almost wholly formed by selection under domestication differed as much as the full-grown animals but having had careful measurements made of the dames and of three day-old colts of race and heavy cart-horses i find that this is by no means the case as we have conclusive evidence that the breeds of the pigeon are descended from a single wild species, I compared the young pigeons within twelve hours after being hatched. I carefully measured the proportions, but will not here give the details, of the beak, width of mouth, length of nostril and of eyelid, size of feet and length of leg, in the wild parent species, in powders, vantails, runts, barbs, dragons, carriers, and tumblers, Now, some of these birds, when mature, differ in so extraordinary a manner, in the length and form of the beak, and in other characters, that they would certainly have been ranked as distinct genera, if found in a state of nature. But when the nestling birds of these several breeds were placed in a row, though most of them could just be distinguished, the proportional differences in the above-specified points were incomparably less than in the full-grown birds, some characteristic points of difference, for instance that of the width of mouth could hardly be detected in the young but there was one remarkable exception to this rule for the young of the short-faced tumbler differed from the young of the wild rock-pigeon and of the other breeds in almost exactly the same proportions as in the adult stage these facts are explained by the above two principles fanciers select their dogs horses pigeons etc for breeding when nearly grown up. They are indifferent whether the desired qualities are acquired earlier or later in life, if the full-grown animal possesses them. And the cases just given, more especially that of the pigeons, show that the characteristic differences which have been accumulated by man's selection, and which give value to his breeds, do not generally appear at a very early period of life, and are inherited at a corresponding not early period. But the case of the short-faced tumbler, which, when twelve hours old, possessed its proper characters, proves that this is not the universal rule, for here the characteristic differences must either have appeared at an earlier period than usual, or, if not so, the differences must have been inherited, not at a corresponding, but at an earlier stage now let us apply these two principles to species in a state of nature let us take a group of birds descended from some ancient form and modified through natural selection for different habits then from the many slight successive variations having supervened in the several species at a not early age and having been inherited at a corresponding age the young will have been but little modified and they will still resemble each other much more closely than do the adults just as we have seen with the breeds of the pigeon. We may extend this view to widely distinct structures and to whole classes. The forelimbs, for instance, which once served as legs to a remote progenitor, may have become, through a long course of modification, adapted in one descendant to act as hands, in another as paddles, in another as wings. But on the above two principles, the forelimbs will not have been much modified in the embryos of these several forms, although in each form the forelimb will differ greatly in the adult state. Whatever influence long-continued use or disuse may have had in modifying the limbs or other parts of any species, this will chiefly or solely have affected it when nearly mature, when it was compelled to use its full powers to gain its own living, and the effects thus produced— will have been transmitted to the offspring at a corresponding nearly mature age thus the young will not be modified or will be modified only in a slight degree through the effects of the increased use or disuse of parts with some animals the successive variations may have supervened at a very early period of life or the steps may have been inherited at an earlier age than that at which they first occurred In either of these cases, the young, or embryo, will closely resemble the mature parent form, as we have seen with the short-faced tumbler. And this is a rule of development in certain whole groups, or in certain subgroups alone, as with the cuttlefish, land-shells, freshwater crustaceans, spiders, and some members of the great class of insects. With respect to the final cause of the young in such groups not passing through any metamorphosis, we can see that this would follow from the following contingencies, namely, from the young having to provide at a very early age for their own wants, and from their following the same habits of life with their parents, for in this case it would be indispensable for their existence that they should be modified in the same manner as their parents. Again, with respect to the singular fact that many terrestrial and freshwater animals do not undergo any metamorphosis, while marine members of the same groups pass through various transformations, Fritz Müller has suggested that the process of slowly modifying and adapting an animal to live on the land or in fresh water instead of in the sea, would be greatly simplified by its not passing through any larval stage for it is not probable that places well adapted for both the larval and mature stages, under such new and greatly changed habits of life, would commonly be found unoccupied or ill-occupied by other organisms. In this case the gradual acquirement at an earlier and earlier age of the adult structure would be favoured by natural selection, and all traces of former metamorphosis would finally be lost if on the other hand it profited the young of an animal to follow habits of life slightly different from those of the parent form and consequently to be constructed on a slightly different plan or if it profited a larva already different from its parent to change still further then on the principle of inheritance at corresponding ages the young or the larvae might be rendered by natural selection more and more different from their parents to any conceivable extent Differences in the larva might, also, become correlated with successive stages of its development, so that the larva in the first stage might come to differ greatly from the larva in the second stage, as is the case with many animals. The adult might also become fitted for sights or habits in which organs of locomotion or of the senses, etc., would be useless, and in this case the metamorphoses would be retrograde. From the remarks just made, we can see how, by changes of structure in the young, in conformity with changed habits of life, together with inheritance at corresponding ages, animals might come to pass through stages of development perfectly distinct from the primordial condition of their adult progenitors. Most of our best authorities are now convinced that the various larval and pupal stages of insects have thus been acquired through adaptation not through inheritance from some ancient form. The curious case of Cetaris, a beetle which passes through certain unusual stages of development, will illustrate how this might occur. The first larval form is described by M. Faubrey as an active, minute insect, furnished with six legs, two long antennae, and four eyes. These larvae are hatched in the nests of bees, and when the male bees emerge from their burrows in the spring, which they do before the females, the larvae spring on them, and afterwards crawl on to the females, while paired with the males. As soon as the female bee deposits her eggs on the surface of the honey stored in the cells, the larvae of the Cetaris leap on the eggs, and devour them. Afterwards they undergo a complete change. Their eyes disappear, Their legs and antennae become rudimentary, and they feed on honey, so that they now more closely resemble the ordinary larvae of insects. Ultimately they undergo a further transformation, and finally emerge as the perfect beetle. Now, if an insect, undergoing transformations like those of the sitaris, were to become the progenitor of a whole new class of insects, the course of development of the new class would be widely different from that of our existing insects and the first larval stage certainly would not represent the former condition of any adult and ancient form on the other hand it is highly probable that with many animals the embryonic or larval stages show us more or less completely the condition of the progenitor of the whole group in its adult state in the great class of the crustacea forms wonderfully distinct from each other namely, suctorial parasites, syrupedes, and tamostraca, and even the malacostraca appear at first as larvae under the nauplius form, and as these larvae live and feed in the open sea, and are not adapted for any peculiar habits of life, and from other reasons assigned by Fritz Müller, it is probable that, at some very remote period, an independent adult animal, resembling the nauplius existed and subsequently produced along several divergent lines of descent the above-named great crustacean groups so again it is probable from what we know of the embryos of mammals birds fishes and reptiles that these animals are the modified descendants of some ancient progenitor which was furnished in its adult state with bronchi a swim-bladder four fin-like limbs and a long tail all fitted for an aquatic life As all the organic beings, extant and recent, which have ever lived, can be arranged within a few great classes, and as all within each class have, according to our theory, been connected together by fine gradations, the best, and if our collections were nearly perfect, the only possible arrangement would be genealogical, descent being the hidden bond of connection which naturalists have been seeking under the term of the natural system. On this view we can understand how it is that in the eyes of most naturalists the structure of the embryo is even more important for classification than that of the adult. In two or more groups of animals, however, much they may differ from each other in structure and habits in their adult condition, if they pass through closely similar embryonic stages we may feel assured that they are all descended from one parent form, and are therefore closely related. Thus, Community in embryonic structure reveals community of descent, but dissimilarity in embryonic development does not prove discommunity of descent, for in one of two groups the developmental stages may have been suppressed, or may have been so greatly modified through adaptation to new habits of life as to be no longer recognizable. Even in groups in which the adults have been modified to an extreme degree, community of origin is often revealed by the structure of the larvae we have seen for instance that syrupedes though externally so like shellfish are at once known by their larvae to belong to the great class of crustaceans as the embryo often shows us more or less plainly the structure of the less modified and ancient progenitor of the group we can see why ancient and extinct forms so often resemble in their adult state the embryos of existing species of the same class believes this to be a universal law of nature, and we may hope hereafter to see the law proved true. It can, however, be proved true only in those cases in which the ancient state of the progenitor of the group has not been wholly obliterated, either by successive variations having supervened at a very early period of growth. It should also be borne in mind that the law may be true, but yet, owing to the geological record not extending far enough back in time, may remain for a long period, or forever, incapable of demonstration. The law will not strictly hold good in those cases in which an ancient form became adapted in its larval state to some special line of life, and transmitted the same larval state to a whole group of descendants, for such larval state will not resemble any still more ancient form in its adult state. Thus it seems to me the leading facts in embryology which are second to none in importance are explained on the principle of variations in the many descendants from some one ancient progenitor having appeared at a not very early period of life and having been inherited at a corresponding period embryology rises greatly in interest when we look at the embryo as a picture more or less obscured of the progenitor either in its adult state or larval state of all the members of the same great class. RUDIMENTARY ATROPHIED AND ABORTED ORGANS Organs, or parts in this strange condition, bearing the plain stamp of inutility, are extremely common, or even general throughout nature. It would be impossible to name one of the higher animals in which some part or other is not in a rudimentary condition, in the mammalia, for instance, the males possess rudimentary mammy in snakes. One lobe of the lungs is rudimentary in birds. The quote, bastard wing end quote, may safely be considered as a rudimentary digit, and in some species, the whole wing is so far rudimentary that it cannot be used for flight. What can be more curious than the presence of teeth in fetal whales, which, when grown up, have not a tooth in their heads, or the teeth, which never cut through the gums and the upper jaws of unborn calves. Rudimentary organs plainly declare their origin and meaning in various ways. There are beetles belonging to closely allied species, or even to the same identical species, which have either full-sized and perfect wings, or mere rudiments of membrane, which not rarely lie under wing-covers, firmly soldered together and in these cases it is impossible to doubt that the rudiments represent wings rudimentary organs sometimes retain their potentiality this occasionally occurs with the mammy of male animals which have been known to become well developed and to secrete milk so again in the udders of the genus Bos, there are normally four developed and two rudimentary teeth but the latter, in our domestic cows, sometimes become well-developed and yield milk. In regard to plants, the petals are sometimes rudimentary, and sometimes well-developed in the individuals of the same species. In certain plants, having separated sexes, Colwriter found that by crossing a species in which the male flowers included a rudiment of a pistil with a hermaphrodite species, having, of course, a well-developed pistil, the rudiment in the hybrid offspring was much increased in size and this clearly shows that the rudimentary and perfect pistils are essentially alike in nature an animal may possess various parts in a perfect state and yet they may in one sense be rudimentary for they are useless thus the tadpole of the common salamander or water newt as mr g h lewes remarks quote, has gills and passes its existence in the water, but the salamandra atra, which lives high up among the mountains, brings forth its young full-formed. This animal never swims in the water. Yet if we open a gravid female, we find tadpoles inside her with exquisitely feathered gills, and when placed in water they swim about like the tadpoles of the water-newt. Obviously this aquatic organization has no reference to the future life of the animal, nor has it any adaptation to its embryonic condition. It has solely reference to ancestral adaptations. It repeats a phase in the development of its progenitors. It has slowly reference to ancestral adaptations. It repeats a phase in the development of its progenitors. An organ serving for two purposes may become rudimentary or utterly aborted for one even the more important purpose, and remain perfectly efficient for the other. Thus, in plants, the office of the pistil is to allow the pollen-tubes to reach the ovules within the ovarium. The pistil consists of a stigma supported on the style, but in some composity the male florids, which of course cannot be fecundated, have a rudimentary pistil, for it is not crowned with the stigma which of course cannot be fecundated, have a rudimentary pistol, for it is not crowned with a stigma. But the style remains well developed, and is clothed in the usual manner with hairs, which serve to brush the pollen out of the surrounding and conjoined anthers. Again, an organ may become rudimentary for its proper purpose, and be used for a distinct one. In certain fishes, the swim bladder seems to be rudimentary for its proper function of giving buoyancy, but has become converted into a nascent breathing organ, or lung. Many similar instances could be given. Useful organs, however little they may be developed, unless we have reason to suppose that they were formerly more highly developed, ought not to be considered as rudimentary. They may be in a nascent condition, and in progress towards further development. Rudimentary organs, on the other hand, are either quite useless, such as teeth which never cut through the gums, or almost useless, such as the wings of an ostrich which serve merely as sails. As organs in this condition would formerly, when still less developed, have been of even less use than at present, they cannot formerly have been produced through variation and natural selection, which acts solely by the preservation of useful modifications they have been partially retained by the power of inheritance and relate to a former state of things it is however often difficult to distinguish between rudimentary and nascent organs for we can judge only by analogy whether a part is capable of further development in which case alone it deserves to be called nascent organs in this condition will always be somewhat rare for beings thus provided will commonly have been supplanted by their successors with the same organ in a more perfect state, and, consequently, will have become long ago extinct. The wing of the penguin is of high service, acting as a fin. It may therefore represent the nascent state of the wing. Not that I believe this to be the case. It is more probably a reduced organ modified for a new function the wing of the apteryx on the other hand is quite useless and is truly rudimentary owen considers the simple filamentary limbs of the lepidosiren as the beginnings of organs which attain full functional development in higher vertebrates but according to the view lately advocated by dr gunther they are probably remnants consisting of the persistent axis of a fin with the lateral rays or branches aborted the mammary glands of the ornithorhynchus may be considered in comparison with the udders of a cow in a nascent condition the ovigerous frina of certain cirripedes which have ceased to give attachment to the ova and are feebly developed are nascent bronchi Rudimentary organs in the individuals of the same species are very liable to vary in the degree of their development, and in other respects. In closely allied species, also the extent to which the same organ has been reduced occasionally, differs much. This latter fact is well exemplified in the state of the wings of female moths belonging to the same family. Rudimentary organs may be utterly aborted, and this implies that in certain animals or plants parts are entirely absent which analogy would lead us to expect to find in them and which are occasionally found in monstrous individuals thus in most of the scrofulareaceae the fifth stamen is utterly aborted yet we may conclude that a fifth stamen once existed for a rudiment of it is found in many species of the family and this rudiment occasionally becomes perfectly developed as may sometimes be seen in the common snap-dragon. In tracing the homologies of any part in different members of the same class, nothing is more common, or, in order fully to understand the relations of the parts, more useful than the discovery of rudiments. This is well shown in the drawings given by Owen of the leg bones of the horse, ox, and rhinoceros. It is an important fact that rudimentary organs, such as teeth in the upper jaws of whales, and ruminants, can often be detected in the embryo, but afterwards wholly disappear. It is also, I believe, a universal rule that a rudimentary part is of greater size in the embryo relatively to the adjoining parts than in the adult, so that the organ at this early stage is less rudimentary, or even cannot be said to be in any degree rudimentary. Hence rudimentary organs in the adult are often said to have retained their embryonic condition. I have now given the leading facts with respect to rudimentary organs. In reflecting on them, every one must be struck with astonishment, for the same reasoning power, which tells us that most parts and organs are exquisitely adapted for certain purposes, tells us with equal plainness that these rudimentary, or atrophied organs, are imperfect and useless.' in works on natural history rudimentary organs are generally said to have been created quote, for the sake of symmetry end quote, or in order quote, to complete the scheme of nature end quote. but this is not an explanation merely a restatement of the fact nor is it consistent with itself thus the boa-constrictor has rudiments of hind legs and of a pelvis and if it be said that these bones have been retained to complete the scheme of nature why as professor Wiseman asks have they not been retained by other snakes which do not possess even a vestige of these same bones what would be thought of an astronomer who maintained that the satellites revolve in elliptic courses round their planets quote, for the sake of symmetry quote, because the planets thus revolve round the sun an eminent physiologist accounts for the presence of rudimentary organs by supposing that they serve to excrete matter in excess or matter injurious to the system but can we suppose that the minute papilla which often represents the pistil in male flowers and which is formed of mere cellular tissue can thus act can we suppose that rudimentary teeth which are subsequently absorbed are beneficial to the rapidly growing embryonic calf by removing matter so precious as phosphate of lime. When a man's fingers have been amputated, imperfect nails have been known to appear on the stumps, and I could as soon believe that these vestiges of nails are developed in order to excrete horny matter, as that the rudimentary nails on the fin of the manatee have been developed for the same purpose. On the view of descent with modification, the origin of rudimentary organs is comparatively simple and we can understand to a large extent the laws governing their imperfect development we have plenty of cases of rudimentary organs in our domestic productions as the stump of a tail in tailless breeds the vestige of an ear in earless breeds of sheep the reappearance of minute dangling horns in hornless breeds of cattle more especially according to hewitt in young animals and the state of the whole flower in the cauliflower We often see rudiments of various parts in monsters, but I doubt whether any of these cases throw light on the origin of rudimentary organs in a state of nature, further than by showing that rudiments can be produced, for the balance of evidence clearly indicates that species under nature do not undergo great and abrupt changes, but we learn from the study of our domestic productions that the disuse of parts leads to their reduced size and that the result is inherited. It appears probable that disuse has been the main agent in rendering organs rudimentary. It would at first lead, by slow steps, to the more and more complete reduction of a part, until at last it became rudimentary, as in the case of the eyes of animals inhabiting dark caverns, and of the wings of birds inhabiting oceanic islands, which have seldom been forced by beasts of prey to take flight, and have ultimately lost the power of flying. Again, an organ useful under certain conditions might become injurious under others, as with the wings of beetles living on small and exposed islands. And in this case, natural selection will have aided in reducing the organ until it was rendered harmless and rudimentary. Any change in structure and function which can be effected by small stages is within the power of natural selection so that an organ rendered through changed habits of life useless or injurious for one purpose might be modified and used for another purpose an organ might also be retained for one alone of its former functions organs originally formed by the aid of natural selection when rendered useless may well be variable for their variations can no longer be checked by natural selection All this agrees well with what we see under nature. Moreover, at whatever period of life, either disuse or selection reduces an organ, and this will generally be when the being has come to maturity and to exert its full powers of action, the principle of inheritance at corresponding ages will tend to reproduce the organs in its reduced state at the same mature age, but will seldom affect it in the embryo, Thus we can understand the greater size of rudimentary organs in the embryo relatively to the adjoining parts, and their lesser relative size in the adult. If, for instance, the digit of an adult animal was used less and less during many generations, owing to some change of habits, or if an organ or gland was less and less functionally exercised, we may infer that it would become reduced in size in the adult descendants of this animal but would retain nearly its original standard of development in the embryo there remains however this difficulty after an organ has ceased being used and has become in consequence much reduced how can it be still further reduced in size until the merest vestige is left and how can it be finally quite obliterated it is scarcely possible that disuse can go on producing any further effect after the organ has once become rendered functionless some additional explanation is here requisite which I cannot give if for instance it could be proved that every part of the organisation tends to vary in a greater degree towards diminution than towards augmentation of size then we should be able to understand how an organ which has become useless would be rendered independently of the effects of disuse, rudimentary, and would at last be wholly suppressed, for the variations toward diminished size would no longer be checked by natural selection. The principle of the economy of growth, explained in a former chapter, by which the materials, forming any part, if not useful to the possessor, are saved as far as is possible, will perhaps come into play in rendering a useless part. Then we should be able to understand how an organ which has become useless would be rendered independently of the effects of disuse rudimentary and would at last be wholly suppressed for the variations toward diminished size would no longer be checked by natural selection the principle of the economy of growth explained in a former chapter by which the materials forming any part if not useful to the possessor are saved as far as is possible Will perhaps come into play in rendering a useless part rudimentary but this principle will almost necessarily be confined to the earlier stages of the process of reduction for we cannot suppose that a minute papilla for instance representing in a male flower the pistil of the female flower and formed merely of cellular tissue could be further reduced or absorbed for the sake of economising nutriment finally as rudimentary organs by whatever steps they may have been degraded into their present useless condition are the record of a former state of things and have been retained solely through the power of inheritance we can understand on the genealogical view of classification how it is that systematists in placing organisms in their proper places in the natural system, have often found rudimentary parts as useful as, or even sometimes more useful than, parts of high physiological importance. Rudimentary organs may be compared with the letters in a word still retained in the spelling, but become useless in the pronunciation, but which serve as a clue for its derivation, on the view of descent with modification we may conclude that the existence of organs in a rudimentary imperfect and useless condition or quite aborted far from presenting a strange difficulty as they assuredly do on the old doctrine of creation might even have been anticipated in accordance with the views here explained summary in this chapter i have attempted to show that the arrangements of organic beings throughout all time in groups under groups that the nature of the relationships by which all living and extinct organisms are united by complex radiating and circuitous lines of affinities into a few grand classes the rules followed and the difficulties encountered by naturalists in their classifications the value set upon characters if constant and prevalent whether of high or of the most trifling importance, or, as with rudimentary organs, of no importance. The wide opposition in value between analogical or adaptive characters, and characters of true affinity, and other such rules, all naturally follow if we admit the common parentage of allied forms, together with their modification through variation and natural selection, with the contingencies of extinction and divergence of character, In considering this view of classification, it should be borne in mind that the element of descent has been universally used in ranking, together, the sexes, ages, dimorphic forms, and acknowledged varieties of the same species, however much they may differ from each other in structure. If we extend the use of this element of descent, the one certainly known cause of similarity in organic beings, we shall understand what is meant by the natural system it is genealogical in its attempted arrangement with the grades of acquired difference marked by the terms varieties species genera families orders and classes on this same view of descent with modification most of the great facts in morphology become intelligible whether we look to the same pattern displayed by the different species of the same class in our homologous organs to whatever purpose applied or to the serial and lateral homologies in each individual animal and plant. On the principle of successive slight variations, not necessarily or generally supervening at a very early period of life, and being inherited at a corresponding period, we can understand the leading facts in embryology, namely the close resemblance in the individual embryo of the parts which are homologous, and which when matured become widely different in structure and function and the resemblance of the homologous parts or organs in allied though distinct species though fitted in the adult state for habits as different as is possible larvae are active embryos which have become specially modified in a greater or less degree in relation to their habits of life with their modifications inherited at a corresponding early age on these same principles, and bearing in mind that when organs are reduced in size, either from disuse or through natural selection, it will generally be at that period of life when the being has to provide for its own wants, and bearing in mind how strong is the force of inheritance, the occurrence of rudimentary organs might even have been anticipated. The importance of embryological characters, and of rudimentary organs in classification, is intelligible on the view that a natural arrangement must be genealogical finally the several classes of facts which have been considered in this chapter seem to me to proclaim so plainly that the innumerable species genera and families with which this world is peopled are all descended each within its own class or group from common parents and have all been modified in the course of descent that i should without hesitation Adopt this view, even if it were unsupported by other facts or arguments. CHAPTER fourteen Part two